Okay, please turn to Matthew 5. If you've been with us, you know we are studying the Sermon on the Mount together. Uh, We have considered quite a bit already, and we're kind of approaching a part of our series where we'll kind of increase the number of verses we're looking at uh, in order to get through it all. There is a lot to the Sermon on the Mount. But if if today's your first day, just to recap, and if if you've been every single week, I think it's good to recap as well. Now, what we're looking at as Jesus is preaching, uh, really the greatest sermon ever preached, is that what Jesus is doing is he's not just trying to go to the external reality of religion, but he's going right to the heart. And he's calling us to reimagine what it means to be righteous, and really what it re- to reimagine what it means to be happy, what it means to live the good life. And that was the Beatitudes, uh, that you could translate blessed as happy. And each one of these beatitudes is a new idea of what it means to truly be fulfilled in this life. And an example of that is to be poor in spirit. And immediately you have this paradox. To truly be happy, to truly live the good life, is to recognize your own spiritual depravity and how much you need um, the rescue that only comes through Jesus Christ, His death and resurrection. Uh, Last week, if you were with us, you know that Jesus came out of the Beatitudes, came out of this idea of being salt and light, and then said, I've not come to abolish the law, but I've come to fulfill the law. And last week we talked about the difference between legalism and antinomianism and how really those two things are really come from the same issue, separating the law of God from God Himself, from the character of God. And this morning what we're going to be looking at is really... um, Six ways that Jesus is giving us. This is, if you want to know how I came to fulfill the law, he's going to give us six examples of that. Okay, six different examples. Now, this morning we're just looking at the first three. Next week, Chad will be with us and he'll be teaching through the last three. But each one of these has a formula to it. So last week we looked at this idea. Jesus says, I came not to abolish the law, but to fulfill the law. If you want to kind of back up in in your Bible, uh, this is what he said. He said in verse 17, Do not think I've come to abolish the law or the prophets, so the sum total of the Old Testament Scriptures, but I've come not come to abolish them, but to fulfill them. He says, Truly I say to you, until heaven and earth pass away, not an iota, not a dot, will pass from the law until all is accomplished. And then he says this in verse 20, he says, For I tell you, unless your righteousness exceeds that of the scribes and Pharisees, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. And with that statement, I think Jesus is doing a couple things. First, he's showing us what's at stake. That the call in our life to be righteous is very serious. And he's showing us just how serious that is, that you have to even be more righteous than the scribes and Pharisees. But he's also showing us something else, I believe. He's showing us about the quality of righteousness that the scribes and Pharisees actually had. Because what he's about to launch into is to show us Uh, this reality that we kind of turn everything into an external game. My daughters are four and two, right? Uh, They're already starting to have this sibling rivalry. At four and two, it's amazing to watch. And and those of you who have brothers or sisters, you you know what this is like. And so my oldest, uh, Annalise, who's four, turns everything into a game that she can win. So even breakfast, they both have cereal. She eats it super fast and says, I won, I won. I think, okay, this is so tame now, what is this about to turn into? 
Or you probably have friends like this that turn everything into a game, a game, a competition, something that you can win. We do that with everything, right? We do that with everything, and we certainly do it with religion. We've been doing it for thousands and thousands of years. Tell me the rules. Tell me what I have to do. And I'm just going to do those things externally and say, look, I've, I've got it all accomplished. That's what the scribes and Pharisees were doing. Let's, let's parse out the law. Let's find ways that we can kind of extract the essence of what it means to externally obey the law. And then we'll be able to say, look at us, we're righteous. And Jesus is saying, you don't get it. It's much deeper than that. And so this morning, the way I want you to think about how he came to fulfill the law is this. That Christ, in fulfilling the law, he came to deepen the law. To show us the way that the law is really just an external barometer of the quality and character of your heart. And you could think that you are obeying the letter of the law, as the scribes and Pharisees did. But it hasn't actually penetrated to the deepest parts of your soul. And so Jesus came to deepen the law down into our hearts to show us that the law is it's, it's trying to reveal your desperate need for God Himself, your desperate need for righteousness. And so this morning we'll look at this deepening, this deepening of the law in uh, three different ways. Each one begins with, you have heard it said, and then Jesus will say, but I say to you. Again, there's something I want you to notice about this. He's not saying the law says. He's not saying how the Old Testament might put it. The Lord says to you. No, he's saying you have heard it said. In other words, Jesus is not taking on the law itself. I want you to notice that. He's not taking on the Old Testament itself and saying, okay, I'm going to quote the Old Testament, I'm going to quote the law, and now I'm going to tell you why it's different now. No, he's saying you have heard it said. In other words, this is the tradition the religiosity about the law that you have heard, the teaching about the law from the scribes and Pharisees. This is the way you've heard it put in our culture, in our religious circles. But now I'm going to give you what the law really means. Does that make sense? Totally different thing. You have heard it said, but I've heard uh, I've say to you. And with each one, he's showing us how the law is deepened, deepened down to our hearts, down to our very souls. Okay, three ways. First, he's going to show us that it is possible for us to murder without weapons. It's the sixth commandment. He begins with the sixth commandment. He's going to show us it's possible to murder without weapons. Then he's going to move on to the seventh commandment. It's possible. It's possible to commit adultery in your heart. Not just with your body but actually with your heart itself. It's possible to commit adultery. Then lastly, he's going to talk about divorce. And as he talks about divorce, he's entering into a debate among two different rabbinic traditions. And he's going to show us why divorce is actually asking the wrong question altogether. Okay? So these first three ways, next week we'll look at the last three ways. In total, there are six. Okay, so the first is this that it's possible to murder without weapons. Look with me, Matthew 5, 21. Here's our formula, okay? Jesus says, you have heard it said. So pay attention. He says, you've heard it said to those of old, the tradition, the traditional teaching, the rabbinic teaching, you shall not murder. Whoever murders will be liable to judgment. 
But I say to you that everyone who's angry with his brother will be liable to judgment. Whoever insults his brother will be liable to counsel. Whoever says, you fool, will be liable to the hell of fire. All right. You've heard it said, but I say to you. You've heard it said, here's the sixth commandment. And the teaching of the sixth commandment. So what was happening is you have the, six, you have the ten commandments, right? The sixth commandment says, uh, you shall not murder, right? Distinct from you shall not kill, it's you shall not murder. Right? You shall not just take a man's life without cause. You shall not just murder them outside of something that would be uh, war or command of God. You shall not murder, the commandment tells us. And so what was happening is these Pharisees and scribes were saying, well, I'm good. Probably like many of us this morning would say. Well, at least you've got one of the commandments down, right? Of the ten, those of us who have not committed murder, you feel really good about yourself. And that's what they were doing. They were saying, look, we're righteous. We're obedient. We are worthy of respect and honor because we have not broken the sixth commandment. And here Jesus is saying, yeah, you, you haven't committed murder in that sense. But you're missing the point of the law entirely. And he deepens it. You see, to, to murder someone is to, to rob them. To rob them of their future. Of the future that God might use them in different ways, right? In His kingdom. And ultimately, it's to take the image of God, an image bearer, out of His creation. To murder is to disrespect, to dishonor, to disfame the image of God. And so Jesus says, I say to you, I say to you, everyone who's angry with his brother will be liable to judgment. How many of us this morning have already been angry, perhaps, driving here? Or, or not just anger, he says, but whoever insults his brother, who allows that anger then to turn into an insult, right? who calls perhaps the image of God and another man into question. Or then lastly, he says, whoever says, you fool, you fool, will be liable to the hell of fire. This word, you fool, raka, is actually something that they, it was common to them. It kind of meant, you know, like peanuts, blockhead. That's kind of what it was, right? Uh, you're an idiot, right? You're a fool. You're a blockhead. And, and in those days, if you, if you actually called another person that, you actually could face the council for that. It was actually very serious. But here Jesus is making it even more serious. It's not just the council Jesus says that you would face if you call someone a fool. But you are liable to judgment in hell. What I want you to see is he's not just intensifying the law or just raising the stakes, but he's deepening it. He's showing us that deep down, really all of us have broken the sixth commandment. Every one of us. Because deep down, each one of us is like Cain. We don't honor and respect the image of God in other people. We defame it. We push it down. We inflate ourselves, we puff ourselves up, we tear others down. And here Jesus is saying, you're liable to judgment. 
verse 23, he says, If you're offering a gift at the altar, and there remember that your brother has something against you, leave your gift there before the altar and go. First be reconciled to your brother, and then come and offer your gift. Come to terms quickly and your accuser while you are going to court with him, lest your accuser hand you over to the judge and the judge to your guard, and you will be put in prison. Truly I say to you, you will never get out until you have paid the last penny. So he's taking it and gives an actual example of, of what this might look like. That if you were coming to worship, but you were coming to offer and give an offering, and somebody had something against you, that before you even do that, you should go and be reconciled with that person. That's so serious is our, the way that we relate to one another and the way that we have uh, division with one another and the way that we fight with one another. So serious is all of this that it even uh, impacts the way that we think about our own worship. And of course we see this in our churches today. <laughs> the way that we love one another, or lack thereof, impacts how we function as a church, both within the church and outside the church. That even today, one of the probably the greatest um, insults, the greatest discrepancies that the outside world could have with the church is that we don't love one another. You hear Jesus saying, listen, it's not enough that you just don't murder someone. No, you, you need to understand that what the law is getting at is you need to be reconciled. To be angry with them, to hurl insults at them, you need to be reconciled with those people. And that really needs to translate into one thing. Love. Love. Yes, it might be true that you haven't murdered somebody. But do you love people? Do you love them to the image of God that has been put in them? And this is what we see in 1 John. 1 John 3. He puts it this way, he says, For this is the message that you have heard from the beginning, that we should love one another. We should not be like Cain, who was the evil one who murdered his brother. So do you see what he's, the, the juxtaposition? <laughs> you need to love, and by loving you should not be like Cain, who murdered, right? It's the exact same thing Jesus is talking about. He says, Do not be surprised, brothers, that the world hates you. We know that we have passed out of death into life because we love the brothers. Whoever does not love abides in death. Whoever hates his brother is a murderer. And you know that no murderer has eternal life abiding in him. John says, whoever hates his brother is a murderer. In other words, whoever, if you hate somebody, you have broken the sixth commandment. Hatred is a powerful thing, isn't it? We've seen this so often in our own culture. We've seen this in our own history. Uh, struck by this quote, hate is more lasting than dislike. One thing to dislike someone, but hate will last a generation. Anyone want to guess who said that? Adolf Hitler. And so you see this, this reality that hatred and what it does to the fabric of who we are as human beings, you begin to see that, yeah, hatred really is like murder, isn't it? And if we took enough time this morning to really think about this, we'd all begin to shake our heads. Yeah, I see that. That hatred really comes from the same dark, sinister, sinful place within our hearts as murder itself. Jesus is not just trying to get us to think about the external reality of the law. He's deeping it down to the 
deepest part, the most sinful parts of our soul, and showing us why we need the gospel. We'll get to that at the end. Second, second, he shows us not only is it possible to commit murder without weapons, but that we can actually commit adultery in our heart. That's the seventh commandment. Matthew 5.27, Jesus says, You have heard it said, you shall not commit adultery. But I say to you that everyone who looks at a woman with lustful intent has already committed adultery with her in his heart. Now this morning, all of us should be cringing. And that's his point. Because again, what he's trying to help these Pharisees and the scribes recognize, and his hearers recognize, they were doing the same thing. Okay, I've got the sixth commandment down. I've also got the seventh one, right? I've been very faithful to my wife. I've not committed adultery. I've not done any of that. And he's saying, no, but have you ever actually just looked at a woman with lustful intent? Because if you have, it comes from the same deep, dark, and sinful place in your soul. But if you do it with even your eyes, you are committing adultery with her. All of us this morning as men recognize the power and the struggle of lust. And Jesus this morning, I think, is helping us to understand that it is a serious issue. And not only is it serious if it turns into something like full-blown adultery, but if you remember the story of David and Bathsheba, you know that David didn't just one day think, oh, I'm going to commit adultery and then murder today. But it was a slow progression, a progression that began with what? Lust of the eyes. Lust of the eyes. Men that I counsel and meet with who are struggling deeply with addiction to pornography, it didn't just start like that one day. But it began with gazing lustfully on a woman. And here Jesus is helping us to understand all of this comes from the same deep, needy, core in spirit, spiritually depraved parts of our soul. And it's serious. And here's how serious it really is. Uh, first, we see this not only you know, from Jesus, but if you, Job 31.1, I knew guys in college who actually had this tattooed to their bodies. Job 31.1. If you know it, this is what it says. I have made a covenant with my eyes. How could I gaze on a virgin? This picture, I've made a covenant, not just with my body, right? Externally, but with my eyes themselves, that I am not going to look lustfully on a woman. That's Job 31.1. So this picture of it's not just about you know, the sexual act itself, but it's in your heart, it's in your mind. And it's serious. And this is how serious it really is. This is what Jesus says. Verse 29, he says, If your right eye causes you to sin, tear it out and throw it away. For it is better that you lose one of your members than your whole body be thrown into hell. And if your right hand causes you to sin, cut it off and throw it away. For it is better that you lose one of your members than your whole body go into hell. I'd love for you to wrestle with these two verses at your tables this morning. What is Jesus talking about? And what I want you to see this morning is it is incredibly serious to Christ. And the question I want you to ask yourself is it, is it serious to me? Is it serious to me? And there are men throughout history who have taken these words and I think missed the point. 
men like Origen, who took it actually quite literally and castrated himself. But again, I wonder, is that thinking kind of like the scribes and Pharisees? Tell me what I need to do, Jesus, and I'm just going to do that externally. Because I think what Jesus has in mind is not that you would literally gouge out your eyes or cut off your hands, but I think he's helping us to understand this idea that was introduced by Paul and then later very much, I think, reintroduced to us by John Owen, that we are called by the power of the Holy Spirit to put our sin to death. We are called by the power of the Holy Spirit Put our sin to death. And if you're with us in our study through Romans, we talked about this a lot. But this side of heaven, yes, is there grace? Of course. Yes, are you going to struggle? Of course. Are you going to be perfect? No. But so often, it's so easy for us to kind of say, just like in Romans, are we to sin that grace may abound? Paul says, no. You have the power of the Holy Spirit, the same Holy Spirit as we approach Resurrection Sunday, who rose Christ Jesus from the dead, now dwells in your mortal bodies, Paul says. You have the resurrection life, and you have called by the power of the Holy Spirit to put sin to death. Romans 8.13 For if you live according to the flesh, you will die, but if by the Spirit you put to death the deeds of the body, you will live. Galatians 5.24 Those who belong to Christ Jesus have crucified the flesh with its passions and desires. Colossians 3.5 Put to death, therefore, what is earthly in you, sexual immorality, impurity, passion, evil desire, covetousness, which is idolatry. John Owen famously said this, and you've maybe heard this before. It's a great, great quote. Be killing sin, or it will be killing you. Be killing sin, or it will be killing you comes from a great, if you've never read it, I absolutely recommend it to you. The Mortification of Sin. We have it in our bookstore. Go and read it. Because what you'll find is with that, with that exhortation from John Owen to put the sin to death, right? to be killing sin, or it will be killing you, it is dripping with the gospel. The only way, Owen says, you can possibly do that is by the power that is work within you, the Holy Spirit, God Himself, to begin to ask the Holy Spirit to do that in you, you must become what? Poor in spirit. You must begin to realize that you are powerless, and that you need the gospel. And that's not going to happen if you think, oh, I haven't committed adultery. No, Jesus is deepening it. He's deepening the law and helping us to see our deep and dark need. This is Owen, real quickly, and we'll move on to lasting divorce, and then I'll let you go to your tables. Oh, and this is, again, the mortification of sin. He says, set faith at work on Christ for the killing of your sin. His blood is the great sovereign remedy for sin-sick souls. Live in this and you will die a conqueror. You will, through the good providence of God, live to see your lust dead at your feet. Beautiful, isn't it? We are more than conquerors through dry through Christ Jesus. And not only one day will we conquer death itself through His resurrection, but this side of heaven, we can conquer sin, not on our own power, but through the power that has worked within us. The power of the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ.
Christ. Okay, third, divorce. Divorce, the third that we'll look at this morning, and then there's three more that we'll look at next week. But divorce, Matthew 5.31, Jesus says, It is also said, whoever divorces his wife, let him give her a certificate of divorce. But I say to you that everyone who divorces his wife, except on the ground of sexual immorality, makes her commit adultery, and whoever marries a divorced woman commits adultery. All right, well, we could talk about this one for a long time. And so we'll end with a few things that I'll recommend for you to read. Um, But uh, let me say this. Whoever divorces his wife, let him give her a certificate of divorce. We know that there were two distinct rabbinical teachings at the time. And we also know this, that we currently live in a culture where divorce is rampant. We all agree with that. Where we are seeing over and over again uh, marriages fall apart. And even as a church, we have recognized this in our own body, that so much of what we do as pastors and elders is to dive into the deepest parts of pain and brokenness from divorce. It, it takes up so much of our time, uh, to the point where we've, even, we've started ministries, right? Uh, re-engage, we met last week, to really bolster up what marriage truly is. We also know that this is not new. It might feel like it's new. But it's not new. At the time when Jesus was teaching, divorce was just as rampant. You could literally, according to their, well, so there's two different distinct rabbinical teachings. One that looked a lot like Jesus's, and he's going to even deepen that. But one that also said, hey, if you have any cause whatsoever, any cause, that you could divorce your wife. As long as you give her a certificate, as it's quoted here. So, yeah, it could be something like adultery, but it could also be like, I don't really like your cooking. Or I don't really like the way you do this or that. I mean, it, it really almost didn't matter. It was almost limitless. And so Jesus is entering into this debate. That's the part that you can't see. Because he's as much teaching about divorce as he's teaching us about human nature. And the way that we will try to, if the law doesn't fit us, we will bend the law to fit us. And that's exactly what was happening. Two distinct rabbinical traditions fighting with each other about what the law says. Why? Because they wanted the law to say a different thing to suit them. For those who were on one side, who were keeping it, well, they wanted to make sure that, hey, we're keeping it. We want to get credit here. And the others who were breaking it were saying, well, we want the law to change and to be different. We want to massage it in a different way. Why? Because we want to get credit as well. Jesus here is saying, listen, it's deeper than that. And I believe it's even you're asking the wrong question. And to show you that real quickly, and we'll end, I want to take you to the other part of Matthew where Jesus teaches on divorce, Matthew 19. So if you have a Bible, turn there. You can go there in your iPhone. Matthew 19. And again, it's the same kind of situation. This is not a sermon now. Jesus is being questioned by the scribes and Pharisees about divorce. They are coming to him this time. Matthew 19.3, it says the Pharisees came up and tested Jesus by asking, is it lawful to divorce one's wife for any cause? Do you see that question? They're getting Jesus to weigh in on the debate. You see that? Okay, Jesus, we'll ask you now. Is it lawful to divorce wife for any cause? Because over here, this tradition over here, that's what they say you can do. And here's what Jesus says. 
Have you not read that he who created them from the beginning made them male and female? And said, therefore, a man shall leave his father and his mother and hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. So they are no longer two, but one flesh. What therefore God has joined together, let no man separate. This is why I love Jesus. What did he do? Did he answer the question? Sort of. I think he's showing them something. I think he's teaching them in the way that only Jesus can. You're asking the wrong question. We are spending all this time and energy fighting about whether or not what divorce actually is. And we're not spending any time talking about what marriage is. So I'm not going to talk to you about divorce right out of the gate. I'm going to talk to you about marriage and where it comes from and why it even exists in the first place. Because for you to ask about the law misses the point of marriage entirely. You're sitting here wondering about whether or not what, what the line is. And we, you've probably all experienced this with your kids, right? Okay, what's the line? I just want to know what the line is so I can get up as close to the line as possible and not break it. It's deep in our human nature, isn't it? That's what they were doing. You're missing the point. It's not about what divorce is and whether or not you can or can't. It's about what marriage is and what it should be. That here we have this beautiful institution created by God Himself. He's quoting Genesis here. As far back as Genesis, God has created marriage. Why? To be a display of the gospel to the world. That's what Paul tells us in Ephesians 5. Great mystery of marriage. To be a picture of Christ in the church. Marriage exists. Its whole function is to teach us what the love of Christ for His church actually looks like. And so what happens when divorce becomes rampant? The gospel is torn down. That's what's at stake. That's what's at stake. And so he goes on and he says, in verse 7, they ask him, uh, Matthew 19, 7, they said to him, well, why then did Moses command one to give her a certificate of divorce and send her away? And he said this, and this is what I want you to see. Because of your hardness of heart, Moses allowed you to divorce your wives, but from the beginning it was not so. And I say to you, Whoever divorces his wife except for sexual immorality and marries another commits adultery. He's saying, look, the way you're even approaching this just reveals how hard your hearts actually are. Marriage is a picture of Christ in the church. My love has never failed the church. And what's amazing about Christ here is that though we commit adultery all the time with Him, He does not divorce us. He does not divorce us. And so He gives really just one qualifier. Except in the case of adultery. Except in the case of adultery. And so in our church, there's really two, you would say, biblical reasons for divorce. But even to say that out loud and to think of it that way, what I want you to see is missing the point entirely. It's saying, hey... Give me my out. What's my out here? And I think what Jesus is trying to help us to see is it's not about finding an out. It's deepening the law to our hearts. What is marriage called to be? This beautiful expression of Christ in the church. A commitment that lasts unto death. Why? Because Christ has been committed to us unto death. 
Jesus is deepening the law for us, calling us to wrestle. And on one hand, I think part of this is to show us what the law actually is. But the second, I think what he's doing is he's helping us to see that he recognizes that he goes through the Beatitudes of each one of them, blessed are the poor in spirit, that most of us probably don't have a clue what he's talking about. And so I think he's showing us. If you weren't poor in spirit before, after these six points are going to be. That if you don't understand what it means to be spiritually needed, spiritually needy, spiritually depraved, if you don't know what spiritual poverty looks like, after these six points, these six things, you're going to understand what spiritual poverty is. He's showing us our deep need for the grace and gospel of Jesus Christ. So as we go to our tables, the last question on your sheet is this. If Jesus came to fulfill the law, then how is it that he fulfilled the law in these three things specifically? How did Jesus fulfill the law specifically in these three ways? And what I want you to consider is this. Jesus was hated and despised because of our hatred. Jesus was hated and despised because of our hatred. He was torn, literally cut down, broken, gouged because of our lust. In Jesus, though we are faithless and though we commit adultery, He is faithful. And He is the faithful bridegroom, the faithful husband to us. That even in our marriage failures, He is abundantly faithful. With each one of us, not only is He trying to show us just how deep and dark we are, He's showing us how deep the gospel goes down to the very depths of our soul and utterly rescues us out of our poverty. That's what it means to be righteous. So I leave you with this. This is Romans 8. Romans 8 says, There is therefore no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. The law of the Spirit of life has set you free in Christ Jesus from the law of sin and death. For God has done what the law weakened by the flesh could not do, by sending His own Son and the likeness of sinful flesh and for sin, He condemned sin in the flesh. Listen to this. In order that the righteous requirement of the law might be fulfilled in us. Jesus Christ came not to abolish the law, but to fulfill it. And by His death and resurrection, He has fulfilled the law on your behalf. Hated because of your hatred. Cut off because of your lust. He is faithful though we are faithless. We pray for you, send you to your tables. Father, we are so thankful this morning that as we tackle these tough, tough things, we pray, Father, that you would show us the deepest parts of our soul that desperately need the gospel. And Lord, may we know this morning, right now, even in this moment, that you are here with us. You are faithful and that you desire to heal our brokenness to rescue us from our own depravity, to provide and fulfill those parts of us that are so impoverished. We need You, Jesus. And we thank You this morning that You are helping us to see our need for You. We ask this in Your name. Amen.